0: Welcome back. This is episode 60 of the morning brushback. Bobby, that's a lot of numbers. That's a big, that's five dozen even. How do you
1: feel about this? I feel like we're, I feel like we're probably going to get to 600 episodes by the end of the summer. Will we ever hit our stride? That's the the question. Are we, are
0: we any better at this today than we were 59 episodes ago?
1: I feel like I'm, that's I'm bad. probably bo- a bad, I'm probably bad, bogging issue. you I'm bogging you down on your on your podcast, but me personally, I am killing the podcast game. Hmm.
0: Uh. Well, thanks for being here today. If you are new, or if you're a returner to our show, obviously, if you're listening on Twitter or uh, YouTube, you can leave a comment. So, if you're interested in interacting with us, feel free. We I monitor the YouTube, and Bobby monitors Periscope.
1: Uh, so Robert, what are our topics today? So today we're getting to the end of fall baseball season for a lot of players. So we're going to talk a little bit about ramping down, throwing good, bad idea, uh, partnership MLB with some of the new, some of the independent leagues. And what else do we got Dan? Anything we have and more and more.
0: Well, we're going to talk about whether it's better to be a good player on a bad team or a bad player on a good team or if you should leave teams if you're not getting playing time, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is a very wide-ranging and interesting topic. I did a Twitter poll about this, so we will talk about these these fine results that we got from this poll. So first, let's talk about this MLB partner
1: organization thing. Well, we don't know much about it other than they decided to partner Frontier League, Atlantic League, and American Association of all those are the three main independent leagues in the U S uh, I've all partnered with MLB. So by some of the stuff I'm reading, it sounds like th- that the MLB to incorporate some rules, maybe some rule changes and test them out similar to what they did in the Atlantic league with the automated strike zone, the, the stealing of first base, um, what they're currently doing now with, we're starting a runner on second and, uh, the California rule fresh innings. Um, what I did see is that the American Association is not a full partnership. I uh, could be wrong about that, that, but they did push back. Uh, their their league lawyer actually tweeted out and said they won't be doing any rule changes. It's still a play-to-win league, so I don't know if they're trying to break the curve there and and separate themselves a little bit from the Atlantic League or Frontier League, but it sounds like that they want to break away and be more of a – and still like a true independent league while still being able to send players to MLB.
0: Well, the Atlantic League rules were hated. I mean, some of them were asinine. The stealing first base thing is asinine. It was just ridiculous. The Moving, moving. The, move, moving the mound back two feet. Like those are all things that like guys who are released from the majors or triple A or double A, they don't want to deal with that nonsense. They're trying to get back to the major leagues, not be in this carnival show. The stealing first base thing is ridiculous. The mound moving back was ridiculous. The not being able to pick to first base, ridiculous. Like, so I, I applaud the American Association for not wanting to get in that that just load of nonsense. Like, hey, let's keep our league, the one that if guys don't want to do all that BS, they'll come to the American Association. I think that's I
1: think it's a, va- a valid position to take. And they have been the. I mean, for all accounts, the American Association has been the league that has been producing the most talent out of the independent leagues as far as talent going back to minor league baseball. They're right in the middle frontier league for anyone that doesn't know. So the Atlantic league, if you had a hierarchy of independent leagues, the Atlantic league is the most experienced league. Uh, the American association average age wise is the next most experienced league and the frontier league is the youngest league. So if you're in the frontier league, you're usually a guy right out of college or maybe a guy who's got a year rookie ball that's been released American association has some guys where it's a mix. You have to have a certain amount of rookies on the roster. Uh, I believe it's five rookies and the Atlantic league is basically like your veteran league. You've got guys that have usually, you know, some teams have guys with big league time, triple A time, double A time. So if we're going by, you know, projectable talent that still has some years left on their prime, American association is probably that league. Yeah, that's
0: correct. Uh, And I took issue with you saying, like, producing talent. I mean, the independent leagues don't really produce talent. Like, you, pr- you, but, yeah, uh, but to your point, you're right. There's more, like, guys with years left. There's more guys who are very talented from 25 to 27 years of age in the American Association, whereas the Atlantic League is all – there's a lot more of, like, 27 to 32-year-olds where teams are just like, yeah, we know what that guy can do. He, like, got eight years in the minors already we don't we're not really interested whereas there's some guys who are more unproven that like like you said you're if you're 26 throwing 94 to 96 in the american association that's different than if you're 30 throwing 94 to 96 in the atlantic league right right so so yeah that's that does seem like it's the tipping point where it's not as high a level of play as the atlantic league but there's again more viable talent i think that's the way to put it and of course there's also the american or the um the Pecos League, which is—I mean—I know it offends people when I say—but it's, it's a junk league. It's just, it is what it is. Like you make so two hundred dollars, you make two hundred dollars in salary, and you play on like high school fields in front of no people. And there's some guys that will throw in the '90s there and like get signed, but it's a junk league. Let's just be honest with each other. So it's definitely America? a pay-to-play league. Yeah, I mean, you know, just because you have some guys that get signed because they have a tool or you know a second tool or whatever, it doesn't make it not a junk league. So anyway uh and of course there's the what's the other one it's also uh, north the northeast it just like falls between the frontier league and the american association there's
1: the league so there's the like league it's not a bubble league but there's four teams out of michigan i think it's the aspbl right no
0: not America. that one the, the, the can-am does the can-am league still still exist or is that no gone? can-am league merged. that's what i was talking about yeah
1: that other league i'm not interested in talking about that either yeah but, uh, but so you know the can-am league made the american association a 16 team league or an 18 team league, something. I mean, it's a big league now. You're talking a lot of teams spread out over the over the U.S. and some in Canada. But if you're if you're the American Association, that's a good move not to not to fully partner. I think I, if I'm going to incorporate rules and try and make baseball a little more different and fan friendly, I'm going to the Dominican, to Taiwan, and see what Japan see what these teams do that are drawing fans. Because baseball is very popular across the globe as a, as a spectator sport. Like Japan draws well. What are you saying right now? I'm just As a I'm spectator talking, sport? As yeah, a, what other to, this is my what podcasting. Other guy to, what other kind of sport would it be? The WNBA. Uh, just a sport that's a sport.
0: Okay. Just hate on women Friday. Good job, Robert. WNBA is not a, it's not a spectator sport. It's tough to watch. Okay. Uh, No comment, but um, so the partner leagues, it doesn't seem like there's anything. It just like, it's a very vague nebulous thing at the moment, right? Like they didn't announce anything. Like we were just scanning these articles and they really didn't give any details about about what being a partner league with the MLB means.
1: I feel like there's got, I think there's going to be something coming down the pipeline that a lot of these teams at the 40 teams or so that got axed from affiliated minor league ball are going to somehow, filter their way into these leagues and they're going to become like real, like larger independent leagues with maybe 16 to 20 teams. Cause Atlantic league right now is, is seven teams. American association, I believe is 16. I think the frontier league is 12 teams. I feel like these, these leagues are about to get a boost in, uh, in teams, which could be good. I mean, who knows? That's the nice thing about the Atlantic league is the proximity of all the teams. Everything's really close. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And proximity to Wawa is strong in the, in the Atlantic. League. <laughs> there's, there, there's a Wawa within 15 minutes of every ballpark. So that's always a plus, but yeah, I think it's going to also have something to do with, because I think the uh, Atlantic League had some partnership with MLB before, like they did with all the nonsense rules. But before that, they still had one, which was, it just made the transfer of contracts easier. And that was all like legal partnership stuff that I didn't really understand. But they, it just was simpler for someone to buy an Atlantic league player's contract and he's just like quickly gone. So I know they had that contract transfer sort of thing going on. So I assume that's going to continue and they'll probably make it even easier where, you know, um, cause it, you know, they buy your rights and they have to pay the team to own you now. And then, so then they get to, you know, do their thing. But, um, so let's talk about this poll that I put on Twitter. So what's best for an athlete's development. And I gave three options kind of be the big fish in a small pond, tiny fish in a huge pond or fighting to stay alive in a big pond. So the three options you could pick were best player on a bad team, bad player on a great team or fight for playing time on a good team. So before I reveal this poll and I guess I can screen share, let me, let me, well, I'll screen share in a second.
1: What do you think the results were Robert? I got to imagine most people out of fear of being wrong, said fight for playing time on a, on a good team. Do you think there's a fear of being wrong on anonymous Twitter polls? Yeah, I do. I feel like people, I feel like people don't want to get the wrong answer, regardless if it's anonymous. I, I was
0: pleasantly surprised at the results. This is the result you would hope for. I mean, you and I, I don't know that anyone that you and I know would without having like, you know, all the nuance and context of like everyone, everyone's situation is different, right? Like we get that. Sometimes there are definitely times to leave your team, find a new team. Obviously there's a million scenarios, but on the whole, I don't know. I can't imagine anyone that I know, like a coach or a player who played at a high level who would not choose the, the last option, which is fight for playing time. On a, on a good team
1: so i mean I'll, I'll push back slightly and say you're we're talking about development right like how how much how am i going to get a lot better as a player personal player i'm talking about overall in your career because if i'm so it, i actually did this in high school like i had the chance to go to and there were other factors for a reason i didn't go to the the best baseball high school in Chicago. I went to a small school that was not good, but the big fish in a little pond, if you're already a good player, if you're looking for, it depends on what you're looking for. I think in some, in some regards, like, are you looking to get playing time right away? I mean, I also did that with college personally. It's not that I don't want to be around good players, but I, I want to like, if you stand out, you have a better chance of, you know, making a little bit further. I think,
0: that's, that just my, that, that's just that, my opinion. Well, so there's lots of different grades here. So if you were playing on like a really good – and this was the context of the person that tweeted this thing. that So basically I, I, someone's stuff came on my Twitter feed, and this guy was giving out advice. And I don't know what his playing background was, but I don't think it was significant after like high school. But he was just like giving advice, looking back on his time playing ball, whatever. So one of his things was he said that he – Was on like some elite teams and put a lot of pressure on himself because he didn't get as much playing time. So when he got playing time, he'd go out in the field, he'd put too much pressure on himself, make a lot of errors, then it got worse, blah, blah, blah. And then finally he said, you know, like, my advice is to play on a bad team so that you can get your chances and like not do that. And I just absolutely hated that advice. I hate, like, like, the way that he painted that picture was. I'm kind of mentally weak. I can't handle competing on this team, even though it sounded like he belonged on the team, like he got chances. Uh, But he just like choked under pressure consistently and put pressure on himself and then was like, oh, I don't want this. I should have just like been on the easier team. So for me, that seems like the wrong thing because it's like, okay, well, why don't you fix your mindset and do some other things, find a mentor, and maybe that's the root problem rather than the fact that, the team is too, it doesn't sound like the team was the problem. It sounds like he was the problem.
1: Um, I don't know.
0: Based uh, on know, the way I described that. How does that, how does my, my take
1: based on the, based on the way you describe it, I feel I feel like the guy we're talking about couldn't hang on that team. I feel like he ran from that team. And, but I, you know, I have, I'll relate it to basketball where you've got like back when LeBron left the Cavs to go team up with a better, with better players to win like the competitive side of me thinks don't you want to compete against those other good players instead of teaming up with them and making it easier on yourself granted lebron is obviously the best player but i uh. i see i see it like if he would have framed it that way like look i'm going to go i want to compete against these guys i don't want to just team up and take the the easy way out not that it would be an easy way out but i also like the guys that are on teams that like let's not let's not say they're the worst team but they're a they're a 500 team you know they're an average team like i want to compete with guys that i know will go compete with me even if we're not as talented does that help your development i mean i think overall development wise being around the best players makes you a better player
0: you can't just be around
1: you can't just be around guys that aren't as talented and it's like running sprints. Like if you're the fastest guy and you, and you, nobody pushes you to be first in the sprints, you know, at the end of practice, you're not getting any faster or any better. But if there's always some guy who's pushing you, pushing you like that makes you a better player. But I can see where being on a worse team and having the competitive mindset would be beneficial. But I don't think, I don't think other teams push you as
0: much as your own team pushes you, especially in long-term development for a player.
1: Yeah, I mean, because it's a crapshoot. Like, the word development—it's
0: like, not development like it's the NBA.
1: Is, yeah, go ahead. I agree with you. The word development here is is the separating factor, right? Like, if I'm just trying to be the best player that I can be, I want to be around the other really, really good players because it's, it's either gonna like a uh, uh, poop or get off the pot, all right? Like, rise up to the to the level that everybody else is, or you're just gonna fall behind. I'm surprised you didn't curse there. Yeah. I was trying, I was trying my best. Well,
0: and I mean, so we, we've talked about like, you don't like kids playing down a level, like you don't want them to play 14U if they can play 15U and that's kind of the same thing. Right. But I mean, the thing with baseball especially is it's a preparation sport. And that's why I think having teammates that push you that you have to work harder. Like if you're on a team, like if you go to Vanderbilt and you're not on a full scholarship which you know, most guys in baseball are not on a full scholarship anyway, but if you know, you're aware, like you go to a Vanderbilt-type school mm-hmm. and you're not one of their top guys, you weren't a fifth-round draft pick, you weren't a 10th-round draft pick, like you're just an undrafted guy, but you're good, obviously, and they give you like you know a little bit of money, you know that you're not like in the starting lineup. You know that you're not, right? So what are you doing? You're learning from all these other players. You're trying to say, what does he do? What does he do? What does he do? And, all right, how can I build my skyscraper bigger than his? Right. That's, I mean, there's huge benefits to being in the mix, but having to be pushed by your teammates to, to break through. Whereas if that same player goes to a lower school, say like a Belmont, which is a good baseball school, like again, but they're like not Vanderbilt, right. They're also in, in Nashville. Now that guy can maybe star as a freshman. Maybe that's good for him, but also maybe it's not, you know, like he, if he could get on the field of Vanderbilt and get to that level, that's probably going to push him higher than suddenly going somewhere else where he's the best person. But then we've also talked about situations where, because I had a guy I grew up with in high school, or we played together through middle school. He moved away, was the North Carolina State Player of the Year, went to the University of North Carolina to pitch for the Tar Heels, never pitched. Like, he was there mm-hmm. with a- Andrew Miller and Daniel Bard and all those other guys.
1: He was legit, and he never pitched. So that's I think that's the separate – So because I do give a yeah. lot of college advice and – my number one advice outside of like choosing a school that you're going to be happy at school wise is, are you going to get a chance to get on the field? You know, we've got a lot. I've, you know, I coach, a I coach an all-star fall team. And a lot of these kids go to, to bigger schools like Louisville, Oklahoma, and those are awesome baseball schools. You're going to be around tons and tons of talent, but are you going to get one shot to be on the field and then never get back on the field? Like it's as much as you want to compete, sometimes it, it is out of your hands. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: And so the nuance of the term, I mean, again, there, as we're getting to, there's lots of scenarios. There's a million scenarios. If you're in the mix where you could get to the field, but you're not there yet. Like you're the sixth guy and you want to be a weekend starter, right? You're the fifth starter, whatever. Uh, you're the backup shortstop. If you are in the mix to get playing time at some point, then I think it's good. It's the right move for you to be in the pack. If you have no shot of being on the field, then you probably need to transfer. You need to find another team. Like, that's the difference. Like, you know, if you're just going to get 20 innings, if you're just going to get – you're going to play every fourth game at shortstop, and that's that, right? You're going to be the backup catcher the whole season and never crack the lineup. But if you're like – if you're like, I'm pretty good as a shortstop and I could maybe take Bobby if I put in a little more work and, like, I get my chances and Bobby slips up, I think I should stay there and, and let Bobby push me and chase him and be on his be on his heels. And again, it's not just like one season; it's like the the scope of your career too. Like being on good play teams with good players that you learn from and you feed off of, and there's there's a benefit to that. So there's
1: definitely a benefit to get to to make to it making you better. But to like to your to your point of the Vanderbilt kid, if he's good enough to go to Vanderbilt, he's probably good enough to go to Belmont, be the starter for three years, and then get drafted as opposed to going to Vanderbilt. Granted, I don't know the situation at Vanderbilt, and there's so many different scenarios here, but I would assume Vanderbilt's got an established starting shortstop uh, if he's a shortstop. He's, they've got the established starting shortstop. So is it benefit this kid to start three years at Belmont and play against Vanderbilt and all those other schools, or is it benefit him to go to Vanderbilt uh, – and maybe sit two years and get a chance to start his junior year and then have a chance to get drafted. Because if we are talking about getting drafted, you have to be on the field. Mm -hmm. And similar to your got your buddy from North Carolina, like he's probably his career path is totally different. If he goes to, you know, UNC Wilmington and Mm -hmm. is their Friday night guy every, every day. So there is something to be said about opportunity. Friday night guy every day. You can be Friday
0: night guy all seven days. You're the Friday (laughs) night guy, (laughs) but you're also the Tuesday night guy. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) We we used to play when Chicago State, when I played Chicago State in college, they used to start their guy. They only had like two starters because Chicago State was like a, just not a fully funded division one program. They'd start the guy on Friday, then he'd come back and start Tuesday, then he would start Sunday, then he would start Friday. So he had like 15 starts in the college season, which is absurd. Excuse me, like 18 to 20 starts. He started yeah. like a third of their college games. But opportunity knocks. I guess. Well, and of course, like using Vanderbilt here
0: is a bad example because when you get to schools like that, they, they will have like a Dansby Swanson who's like penciled in. And, of course, he earned that spot or, you know, whatever. But still, you can get to the spot where it's like you essentially have a a Derek Jeter playing short (laughs) and you're not going to play short no matter what happens unless he's hit by a train. So those are slightly different situations. But in most other colleges around the country, below, like, the probably the top SEC schools, like, the top really top echelon, that's not really going to be the case. Like, if you have two legit guys, they kind of get to duke it out. I mean, would you agree with that?
1: I agree, but I also agree that Outside of those big schools, you should probably seek out the the better playing opportunity. Like I'll use my college. Northern Illinois, as an example, is a mid-major max school, right? So let's use all max schools outside of Kent State. You probably have a chance to battle for a spot. So if it's between Northern Illinois and Central Michigan, I'm probably going to weigh which team has a, an established shortstop, and I'll go the other way just because it's a it's an easier path to – playing time. Agree. And I think onset.
0: Yeah. And I think the distinction here is that there is no, like we're not, taught this isn't, this doesn't really apply to picking which one D one school over another, unless it's like a massive difference, right? Like sure. Going to university, you know, sec versus like university of Buffalo or someplace that's just lesser. It, you're, if you're talking about picking Kent state over university of Ohio and you get to play more at one than the other, there's no difference. Like they're both mid majors, right? Like there's no difference they're, You're both going to get pushed, You're both going to have the same level of training. Like, you're both going to have good coaching. Like, there's no real difference, right? But you are talking about something different if it's, like, I could play low-level D1 versus otherwise my options are D3. I'll start for all four years of D3, or I might have to really scrap it out to get on the field at D1. That's the difference that I'm talking about. I think that if you really want to be – if you really want to see what you're made of and, like, be a good player and, like – at the end of the day, look back and know exactly how good you could have been. You need to go to the D one and be pushed even though it's uncertain right. versus dropping a major level. But again, like mid picking between one mid tier and the other D one, like that's not a, that doesn't really, that's not in this category what I'm talking about, but I am talking about like high level travel ball versus junky travel ball or, you know, 15 U versus playing down 14 U or, you know, travel ball versus playing in house those are big differences. Like if you're a travel minded player and you choose to play like for a really bad team just to get start all the time or to play in house, that's not a good developmental move. Like going down to play in house and hitting 650 is not good for you.
1: Yeah, I mean the I, the f- the flip side of that coin is you know, are you with a program that like has good coaching like you're getting better and you see you see yourself getting better with those coaches even though your team is a is a middling team because there is politics in youth baseball as well like if you're on a good travel team there's there might be a dad coach and that kid might play the position also and true also and true. you might not get a shot to start so so true i if all things equal, right? Like cost aside, no politics. Yeah, you. If I'm going to put you on a field, like I, I would prefer myself to be put on the field with the 12 best players, and they're like the best guys are going to make are going to filter through into lineup, and but not most in most situations in life, things are not fair. Like things are not mm-hmm. set, you know, set in stone like that. But you know, if you're a parent and you want, and you're looking at where should I send my kid? You know, the team A over here is, you know, was 50 and five all summer. Like they're unbelievable and they've got an opening and they're doing a tryout. And my team was 20 and 20 and, you know, we're pretty good and my son bats third and plays shortstop every game. I'll bring them to that tryout, but you're going to get a real good sense of the dynamic of the team as soon as you go to the tryout. You're going to see who's running the tryout. You're going to see the kids on the, you know, the, the dads on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might be better off staying on that 20 and 20 team. If if you notice your son getting significant uh, playing time and he's, you know, I also see the benefit of being on the field. If you're playing a lot of games like that as a, as a young player.
0: Yeah. So here's the Twitter poll. I, I'm pretty sure everyone can see this. I'm screen sharing, but I can't actually tell. I can you can see it. Uh, you can see it? I can see it. Okay. So, yeah, 84% said fight for playing time on a good team. Uh, three, 3% three said bad player on a great team. I think that's makes sense. Because, again, like, if you're just not going to smell the field, that's not a good situation. Like, you're just a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. And uh, best player on a bad team, again, it does depend. I mean, I, and then from my experience, when we start our academy teams and my – former town of bloomington normal we got like d-level players our first year because the the political nature of baseball in our town was was very strong everyone was afraid to leave the bloomington normal baseball association which was run by the um pretty much all the local high school coaches coached in that summer league but they just did a piss board job i mean terrible job and yet they forced every kid to play it essentially because everyone's afraid they're not going to play at high school so everyone you know pays their thousand bucks just to get a jersey they don't practice one time in the winter they just show up and then they write a political lineup like that's what everyone dealt with and they were pissed about it And they're like guys please please make your own academy teams please 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 and then we finally did and then you know what happened no one came Sorry. with us because they were that's afraid mm-hmm. so we scraped together
1: Oh, might've lost Dan here. I'll keep going. So to Dan's point, like when we started travel teams, it was the same, same situation. Uh, People are afraid to leave their team, what have you. And you end up with, you end up with poor teams, teams that have, you know, uh, they struggle a lot in their first year and parents are always looking for the next best thing where if I'm a parent and my son's getting a lot better, he's improving, you know, that might be a a place that you stay and you kind of, you kind of ride out the bumps and bruises and your team gets a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And your son is a part of that. You know, if you're, if you're constantly jumping ship and we've talked about this on the show in the past, if you're constantly somebody who's jumping ship, uh, going to a different team, you know, you're on three teams in four years, four teams in six years. And that's also a bad look. You know, at some point you either you're looked at, you either need to compete for your spot on the team or you need to stick it, stick it out. And if you're the best player on that team, like you need to try and lift up the talent of, of some of your other guys, you know, Hey, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having uh, me. I had a uh, yeah, little technical issue, but, I just um, piggyback off of what you I, I said. Heard,
0: yeah, I heard what you were saying. And so my but my story was basically that, so we got like D-level players, like kids that like weren't going to play summer ball, but then they're like, okay, we'll do it. Uh, you know, kids that got cut from the other teams. But we were like, look, like you guys know us, like we're really good instructors. We're going to like coach your faces off. We're going to practice more. We're going to practice like a lot. And we did all those things. And so if you'd looked on the surface, like it made sense to go with our lower level team, even though we weren't like advertising a lower level team, we didn't have a history. Right. So it wasn't like you knew you were joining a bad team. It just, it just ended up being a a relatively not great team because we just couldn't get good players. But, um, so, you know, we were that team one year, I guess is is my point where it made, if from an outsider, you could say, okay, they're not going to be strong. I know who's on the team. Like I know these kids, but we'll join because we know they're going to get good coaching. That was a valid choice. Right. So there is that sometimes depending as well. But,
1: uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to take in like the development versus success, uh, because kids mature at different ages, right? Kids get Mm -hmm. the best teams at the younger levels are always the most physically mature teams. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's not, that's not a secret. So if mm-hmm. your son just is not physically mature like that, but he's got good skills, just I would I would honestly highly suggest getting him on a team where he's going to get to be on the field because if he's on a team if he's a fifth grader on a team of other fifth graders that look like they're in seventh grade and he looks like he's in fifth grade, he's just going they're not going to give him the shot because there's no reason to like they're physically overpowering every team so your son's not going just he he can't do that. He doesn't fit that mold. It might be good for his uh, development to be around those good players, but if he never gets on the field, something you have to weigh, like Dan was saying earlier, like you have to weigh playing, like being on the field because uh, the, uh, be the you know, the, the distance I'm drawing a blank on the word I want to use, but in, if you're in the same room as all these other good players, yeah, you're learning by watching, you're getting a little better by that pushing you, but If you're not going to get on the field to actually try out some of these skills, it might benefit you more to be on a team that's, I'm not saying go from team A to team Z, but go to team A to team F and get on the field. And actually, as long as you're being surrounded by good instructors and and someone that can, you know, help you along the way. Yeah, I agree,
0: and and also, but again, that also presupposes that like there's just no shot, like you're going to compete because you're too small. I mean, there's still, and it's still like again, baseball. The the thing to remember is you're not being pushed by players during the season, not as much. You're not being pushed by your your opponents. Like, sure, it's probably better if you want to play pro baseball to play for a bottom tier Pac-12 team or a a bad SEC team because you're facing all those sec teams right rather than play like mid-tier d1 baseball if you had a chance so that might be a spot where you level up but again like the difference between being pushed by your teammates on a mid-tier d1 versus a, a, a bottom feeder pac 12 team there's that's not a difference like you're not missing out on anything by by just having a losing record in the pac 12 versus having a winning record in the mac or something Some right so that's but um but at younger levels you do need slightly better competition. You, you you can't thrive facing in-house pitching, like hitting 650 against in-house junk pitching or against junk travel pitching isn't better for you than facing better competition. But the the competition, like you only like really rise to that level to a degree. And really you end up in large part expressing what your preparation was. So, you don't just get better being on a better team facing better competition. Like if you just didn't spend all off season preparing and hitting and hitting and hitting. And that's to part of my point is where if you know, cause signed a lot of kids to our Academy where we're like, Hey, you're going to be like fifth outfielder on paper. So you better work your butt off for the next eight months. If you want to be on the field and they're like, okay. And they get to work. And that's a, that's a very real effect. Whereas you get a kid who knows he's going to play. He doesn't have to do that. Right, And so even if he still does get to play that next season, he didn't spend as much time training because he had that fear because someone was chasing him in the offseason. So anyway, this is a good conversation. I'm glad that you took kind of like uh, you kind of let us butt heads a little bit because, I mean, it is. There's so many scenarios. There's just like a million scenarios. And it is hard. There's a lot of times –
1: I was, I was on a, before we switch over. There's a lot of times where I've got kids who are definitely going to be like the the backup middle infielder or the the fourth outfielder on the on our you know our top team at a certain age level in the high school program, and I'll ask them flat out. I said, "Look, you're going to get half of the at bats all summer. Like that's just how it's going to go. I'm telling you right now. You know we know that we know these other guys. They're going to get the majority of the at bats. They're the they're the premier guys." What do you want to do? Would you rather be the starter on the on the second team or do you want to be on the top team? And it's honestly, it's usually split because mm-hmm. there is something to be said for being on the field. I mean, kids don't want to sit on the bench and watch, like mm-hmm. right? especially if you're competitive. If you're competitive and someone tells you, like, look, you're only going to get half the at-bats and I don't see any way you're going to get more than that, it's like, well, screw it. I'm going to go get all the at-bats and show you that I was better than all these guys. So, I mean, there's a – it's 50 50 I feel like too when you make let the kids make their own decision like some kids just want to be on a good team they don't care if they play which is a I feel like is another is a bad mindset as well like it's okay I'll I'll be a I'll be a backup like that's fine Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and I had to scrap it I mean I was on uh just for context I was on bad teams my whole life I mean we I was on a winning team with Uh, the Long Island Ducks and I didn't even make it the whole season. I didn't pitch well. That was my last season I got released. Uh, Other winning teams? No, no, no. Half season with Lake County, we were 20 and 10. That was really fun. But I mean, every year in college, we were 15 and 35. So it sucks being on a losing team. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it does push you to like do more. But at the same time, you don't also learn winning culture being on a losing team perpetually, or just just like you learn a little bit to be a loser. It's hard because you can't outrun a losing team as one player. Like it's not basketball. You can't just LeBron put everyone on your back in baseball. It just doesn't work that way. Even if you're a stud, stud pitcher. I mean, my, my third season, I started the year with a wife, before I blew my elbow out, I had a one point zero six ERA and forty plus innings as a starter, and I was, I think one and four, or like one and three, or one and two. Like I, had a, I, had a, I had a losing record, um, and like stuff like that. Like you, you, again, you it doesn't matter how good you are, you can't really put. And, and you see that in the major leagues, like Jacob Degrom. How many years does he have like a five hundred record? You can't, you can't win baseball games by yourself. So no, you're right. And there is something to be said for learning how to win being around teams where guys are greater than the sum of their parts. That's a very real thing. And, and, and scouts appreciate that stuff too, where they see like, and I think Swan Dan's Swanson is probably a good, a good example. I don't know that much about him. I haven't watched him that much, but he's not like a guy that wows you. Not really. He's like a, what is he? Slightly above average, big league shortstop, average, big league shortstop. I think so. I don't know. I don't know that he wows anybody. He doesn't hit 40 jacks. He doesn't do anything crazy, but I think he seems like a, a greater than the sum of his parts kind of guy. you really high character. makes really heads up plays. Like he made a heads up play. I saw on highlights the other day, but he's just like a really smart baseball player. And I imagine that he was someone that like helped all the troops get better as you know, the, the tight situations come up and being on really good teams where that, that atmosphere in that one season when I, we were winning in Lake County, my team was like that. We just like knew you almost couldn't beat us. Like it was just like, if it was two to one and we were down, like we were going to find a way to to push across a run. Like we just knew that we were and someone stepped up and there was like an energy that people who's going to step up today, who's going to step. And we got so many hits from like the bottom of the lineup to win games. And, and there is something to be said for that. And having spent almost my entire career losing games, being on bad teams, it's very different when then you're suddenly on a winning team like that. And you're like, wow, this is like a special thing. And you learn to win too. So yeah, winning is fun. I agree. But you have to learn to compete and you have to learn to win And and guys show you how to win and you see it in your teammates. Like if you're around some guys who refuse to lose and they really don't like it. And, and that's, that's more uncommon than people realize. You start to see it when they're like, "Screw this!" Like we're getting runs this inning. Whereas bad teams, you just like go up and you have your bats and you just like accept losing to a, to a degree. So, yeah, I don't know. There's uh, there's a lot of a lot of stuff to cover there. All right, what's our next topic, Robert? Let's move on here.
1: So, last last thing I want to talk about is we're we're getting to the end of fall baseball, um, probably the next few weeks for a lot of players, and there's always a discussion, you know, I'm shutting it. Like, so we've got guys, I'm shutting it down until January 1st. I'm shutting it down for six weeks. I'm shutting it down, you know, or I keep playing catch. So I guess my question to you as a pitcher is what, what did you do after the season was over? Did you completely shut down? Did you, did you just go into like your arm and put your arm into hibernation for a certain amount of time? Do you see any benefit in that? Do you see the negatives in that? Uh,
0: so I talked about this on my, my personal podcast recently, and there, there is also a lot of nuance to this. So if you go on the ASMI's website, pitchsmart.org, that website gives parents all of the, uh, you know, info about, you know, safe pitch counts. It gives you all the risk factors for injuries. It's a really good resource for what to do and what not to do. But, there's still context there that's needed. So number one, like they say, take three months off every year from competitive pitching, which is valid advice. But the thing they don't explain is playing catch is not competitive pitching. Like you can still go take ground balls and throw them across the infield. And like, do you have to completely not throw any object at any speed for three whole months? I think most people who are in the game realize that that's a, not an unreasonable thing to do. Like you could still play catch, You could still, you know, throw flat grounds to someone, work on your off-speed stuff, but just not, like, really let it go and not really throw – certainly not throwing games, but just, like, hey, I'm not going to, like, pitch for three months. I'm just going to still play catch, still throw a baseball. Um, And I think on the surface, you see this effect with weightlifters, with runners. They don't like taking a week off. Their body feels bad when they get back into it, Right. Um, if you're, if you're, especially if you're a heavy lifter, like you feel like you need to grease the groove is the, like the term like your hips feel better when they're, con- they're consistently squatting, even if it's just like a lightweight, they just like their bodies tends to stiffen up when they stop. And, and I think there is something to be said for that. And so you certainly should stop playing competitively and stop pitching competitively, at least probably that three months of the year, give yourself a whole season off. But if you want to go back in the backyard and play catch with your buddies and play catch with your dad and like take ground balls with a friend and play backyard baseball, of course, I know no one does any of these things, but um, <laughs> I think those are all reasonable, valid activities. And I can't imagine that's getting anyone hurt. What's getting people hurt is I play on three teams and I pitch 120 innings a year and I never really get my arm a break from like going full bore. Um, so I, I think with that being said, I think that's a personal choice. So for me after pro ball, I needed time off my body. I was usually like literally in pain at the end of the season and not to mention, you know, throwing 50 relief innings is a lot and or throwing 120 plus innings as a starter is a lot. So your body is just like fundamentally different. So you shouldn't take the lesson. Like this is not a, what a pro guy does is different than what a kid does Where a kid who might throw 40 innings in the summer. If they like don't get overused and they had a pretty, you know, they play a lot of different positions. They pitched a decent amount, but not a ton. You know, they can like continue to just like run around, play baseball if they feel good and that's fine, but just like probably stop pitching for a while. But if you're a high schooler and you played all, all uh, high school season and had like a really competitive summer season, your body just might need a break. And you say, okay, I'm not going to throw for a while or I'm just going to play catch for a couple months and not throw. But I think the difference between taking completely time off and just shifting to, I just get to play catch and keep my arm moving I think either one of those are equally acceptable depending on how your body
1: feels. What do you think? I think unless you're hurt, you should not stop playing catch. Just playing catch. Whether that doesn't I mean tend to needs, agree. Yeah. It I does tend not to agree with you. It doesn't need to be uh, like frequency wise. It doesn't need to be every day. It doesn't need to be five days a week. But mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I never stopped playing catch granted. I wasn't a pitcher. So the mm-hmm. stress on my arm is different. But I, I would I tend to see kids hurt more when they shut down completely, and then as soon as they get back into it, it's okay. Let's long toss day one. Let's go 150 feet, throw as hard as I can, and they come back. And I was that guy too because in high school I was I played multiple sports, so we didn't have like winter training. Right? Mm-hmm. We went. I went from basketball season to baseball season. March first, baseball season in Illinois, where we get outside. It's 40 degrees. And I'm throwing the ball. I'm long tossing. And every year in high school, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year, I'd start the first week after the first practice, I'd be at the trainer. Uh, We didn't have trainers at the school. We had to go to like an athletic coach was new at the time. And he'd be like, he'd be like, dude, what are you doing? Like ease into it a little bit. Cause I would just go full go. And I'd be in pain. And I see it with kids a lot too. Yeah. Uh, So I can't – I personally, if I, if I had a son who was 13, 14, 15 years old and we got to the end of fall ball, I would still want him playing catch twice a week, three times a week, just playing catch. Like mm-hmm. keep your arm mm-hmm. at uh, like a not quite boiling. Like if we're going to – if you're boiling water, like yeah, you're boiling water all summer and your arm is hot and you're throwing hard, yeah, tone it back a little bit, but keep the water warm. Like, you don't want to go all the way back down and have to try and revamp, revamp up. Especially as a younger player when you're trying to consistently improve. Like, if you have your arm in really good shape and then you just let it get out of shape, it's kind of a negative to your development.
0: I agree, and I think uh, I think the people from MODIS tend to agree with that. Like, I know we've had Will Carroll on the show, and they, a lot of the stuff that they did with the Modus sleeve was on acute versus chronic workload. And so... What those two things are, your chronic, lo- I think those terms are like, I think they can make better terms for uh, the public. But chronic workload is your workload over time. So if you're a runner, I'll just use that example, and you run 20 miles a week, that's your chronic workload. You know, 20 miles a week or 80 miles a month, whatever. And then when you have big spikes in your acute workloads, so your acute workload is the short-term workload. So if your chronic workload is a month, let's say, that you put it, typically do 80 miles a, or 80 miles a month or 20 miles a week. And then your acute workload suddenly spikes. So you do 40 miles a week, one, one week. So you like double your workload and you have a big spike. That's where they found that injuries occur. So that you always want to stay. They, they had this like 20% range. Like you never want to go 20% above or 20%, 20% below. So that you, so you don't want to go 20% below. So you maintain your level of fitness there. You don't want to go 20% above because above that, you're putting a lot of stress on your body above and beyond what it's capable for. So, then if you want to get to doing 40 miles a week, you go from 20 miles a week to 24 miles a week. That's 20, you know, that's a 20% jump, then to 28 miles a week, then 32 miles, you know, whatever. Obviously, as you get to 30 miles, 30 miles a week, then it's a six mile uh, per week jump is 20%. So, you it would take you a month to ramp up to getting to 40 miles per week. Would that be a safe way of doing it? Right. And of course, To your point, which is a good one, kids are like one-speed bikes. They don't know what the hell they're doing when they throw. So again, they take all winter off and they're just like long tossing and throwing bullpens two weeks later and they're hurting and they hurt their arms. So pro guys, so again, like using me as an example, yeah, I would take two solid months off because this is like get away from me. Like I don't want to touch a ball. My arm feels, it's like physically hurting. Uh, I need to recover. But then when I start back up, it's all right, the first week I'm playing catch three days a week and I'm making 75 throws and it's legitimately just playing catch. Then the next week it's four days a week of catch. then the next week it's five days a week of catch. Then the next week it's two days that are like up to like 75% effort, you know, and three days that are 50% effort. Then it's, you know, the next week is two days of uh, 90% effort and the other days are catch days. And it's slowly ramping up just like the same way all pro guys figure out how to do this. And so, I'm building up where I start throwing again in November and I'm not throwing hard again until middle of December. And then I have a full month of January to throw hard. And then I can back off a little bit for a week. Then I have the full month of February to throw hard. And then I'd be ready essentially to go. If I was, if I need to be ready to go in March or if I was ready to go in April, I'd probably just slow everything down. So they don't, I think most people don't realize that it's like a legit four month, period to get in shape because you need essentially six plus weeks to ramp up to throwing full speed. And then you start kind of go back down to bullpens Now you're 75% off the mound, 90% off the mound, hundred percent off the mound. Then you want a solid six weeks, I think off the mound at full speed. So if you're like back dating that, if you need to be ready on April 1st, you need to start your full speed bullpens February 15th. And then if you need eight weeks prior to that, that's January 15th, December 15th. And then, you know, maybe you need longer to ramp up or just you want to, like, work more on, like, developing a new pitch and you need more time playing catch to, like, get the grip. So there's that. I mean, it's, it's a long ramp-up process. But most people listening to that are probably saying, uh, I really only take, like, one month to ramp up. You know, you start playing catch first day of uh, February and you're full speed last day of February. That's not long enough. It just isn't. And it's also not long enough to make changes to your mechanics. It's not long enough to make changes to your – to develop a new pitch. Like if you wanna develop a new pitch, you should be playing catch with it for eight solid weeks before you start to go faster with it. Because you need that many weeks to just like feel it and spin it and really like get the, get used to it at a lower speed. And then you start to ramp that speed up too. And now you really understand that new chained up or that new, that new slide or whatever. So that's where people miss a lot of stuff as they, if they do go completely off from throwing, their ramp up sucks. And they get hurt or they just don't get anything out of their winner either like how do you get anything out of your winner when you ramp up for one month i don't know you know so what do you yeah. got there sir
1: uh, i mean you're you're right it's just a a lot of these guys don't they they don't they have one speed and that speed is full go and to to like the development side i mean if if we've got kids in November, December that are coming to like get better and we need to have them play catch, you know, part of that playing catch is probably long tossing or throwing the ball hard, like letting it go. Because we, you know, especially in the winter months, I mean, if we're practicing three times a week as, a, as like a 15-year-old travel team, that's a lot of practice time in the winter, but it's not a lot of time throwing. You know, it's three days a week is not a lot of throwing by any age. It's just not not a lot of throwing. So we have to have them throw like every day, almost like to keep them baseline, like ready until we can get them outside throwing four or five, six days a week to get stronger. Uh, it's not easy to, to balance time off. You know, kids always ask about weightlifting time off as well. And my answer is kind of the same. Like, I don't know. What are you taking time off from? Like you're not in, you're not in like, you're not a finished product where you can Mm -hmm. take a little time off and then come back and like polish up. Like you're a, you're just a, a a pile of a rock that we need to actually mold into, into something. So you should be working out and hitting the weight room hard. Like you have to develop your body before you can like manage a, a finished product. And pro ball is totally different. I mean, I never stopped throwing as a pro guy. I come back from Mm -hmm. the season and granted, I'm a shortstop. I was a middle infielder. So I had a rubber arm to begin with, but at the same time, it's like, I'm not stressing, you know, once or twice a week at 120 full max effort throws. So I could do that. Whereas pitchers, it's a little bit different. And if you're a young kid who's pitching a lot of innings in the summer, like, yeah, I see where your parents want to put you in soccer for six weeks and just let you not throw but still don't, don't empty all the water out of the pool, you know? Yeah, no
0: one's getting hurt from playing catch. I mean, that's, that's the overarching thing. No one's getting hurt from playing catch.
1: And that's they're, probably they're the they're best not. advice out yeah. of the whole thing, right, is you're not going to get hurt just playing catch, like throwing a baseball, throwing a dodgeball. That's not hurting your arm. It's the-
0: uh, let's, not, let's not talk about dodgeball. Let's completely leave dodgeball out of that because yeah. dodgeball is a great way to blow out your arm. You go out there and throw the absolute piss out of it, trying to hurt people. Kids hurt their arms every winter throwing. Let's just like... (laughs) You're, you, you were good until you threw dodgeball in there. Let's not talk about dodgeball.
1: Are you having some PTSD on a dodgeball incident I'm
0: unaware Dude, of? Dude, no one throws dodgeballs slow. You throw dodgeballs at 110% trying to... But, but you only throw four of them because there's only one ball. That's exactly your point that you're just making, that you shouldn't just like go from zero to 100. That's what people do. That's why we're you are an arm with dodgeball. No, You're not, like, ball, you're not in, four not in shape. You're just in... Bobby, you you're doing so good. Balls. You're doing so good today. And then you threw that out. <laughs> that's we literally act. like, hold on. We should end this. Gym class, blowing it out. Terrible thing to do. Don't play dodgeball, kids. But do play lots of catch. But again, catch to a lot of kids is like, they're trying to remind themselves how hard they throw every time they play catch. And that's not a good thing either. Catch means up to 70% effort. Like firm at best, you know? So like you couldn't throw it more than 120 feet playing catch. Like it wouldn't go far enough, but a lot of kids I know play catch. And if the, like, I just didn't catch it, it would just like continue to sail like forever. <laughs> They're throwing, throwing missiles like Andrew Miller in a, in a major league baseball game throwing 98, the catcher stops it. Like he's only 60 feet away, but if the catcher didn't stop it, it would continue to go, you know, a long, long way. So using the short distance to say, again, this is a thing you learn from rehab they do rehab programs for by distance so like you go 40 feet and 60 feet and 75 and 90 and they do that with the understanding that like a 75 foot throw means if you're to throw the ball to your partner at 75 feet it's just firm enough to make it there where it's not loopy but it's just like just firm enough where if i didn't catch it it would go like 10 feet past me and that's that right it's not like throwing a missile where if you throw it through me it goes another 100 feet that's like the reason they do it uh, that way with uh, rehab throws. But a lot of people don't do it that way either. Guys are like doing their Tommy John rehab and they're throwing missiles at each other from 65 feet. And it's like, what are you doing, dude? Like it's a 60 foot throw. 60 foot throw means it's got enough oomph to get there on a, on a line, but not much more. That's what 60 feet means. And that if you had a radar gun, that'd be like 55 miles per hour, probably. But then you have guys throwing 82 from 60 feet and like, that's not a 60 foot throw. Cause 80 would go a would would go 250 feet. So that's a thing to remember when we say catch, it's like catch. Like right. you miss you. you overthrow your partner. It's not going for forever. If you throw it and they miss it, it would only go another 10 feet past them before it hit the ground. Like they could catch, they could potentially catch it
1: barehanded. If they, if needed, it'd be, a dumb, thing it'd be, a, it'd be a dumb thing to do, but yeah, I mean, so you like, could. that's the speed Like right? Like throw it, throw it. So it wouldn't hurt their hand if they, tr- if they, snag it barehanded and i'd say soft
0: line is the best way to describe it like it's it's on it's a, on a line it's firm but it's not like a bb it's it's got a little bit of like softness to the line bb okay. no well robert tell us a little bit about our guests for next week and then our format thereafter
1: so we've got a couple of good guests coming up next week. Uh, Tuesday, Ryan Spader, uh, Twitter, the Ace of Spader. If you follow him, he's a baseball analyst, tweets out a lot of like interesting uh, stats, you know, current stats, uh, historical st- stats, like guys that are on, you know, kind of record paces and stuff like that. So he should be really good on Tuesday. And then Friday, we've got Sam Panionovic, Um, he's a radio host. He's in the, he's in the gambling world based out of Chicago. So that'll pique my interest definitely. But sports gambling is, is becoming the norm. Um, kind of all across the country, FanDuel, DraftKings, Barstool Sports just opened up their, their sports book in Philadelphia. So should be some good conversation with Sam, uh, regarding all things gambling on next Friday. And then we move into one day a week. Dan and I are moving to one day a week. Your favorite podcast is going to get even more, I don't know, elite. I hate that word. What well, I do see it. Well, what we're going to do
0: is we're no, we're no longer going be, to be live. We'll do YouTube premieres, uh, and it's possible that we'll stream it live. We don't have all the details worked out, but we want production quality to stay the same or improve. And we just feel like this is a better long-term change. So we're going to more consistently have guests, probably every every show starting then. Um, And just in general, have a a more high quality experience. We're not sure that the twice a week, the way we market it, all this other stuff is best for the show long-term. So we think we put more of our time into marketing it, to letting people know that, hey, this is when it's going on. I have a large email list, all these things. We think one might be better than two so
1: we'll see how it goes and if it's a train wreck then
0: yeah whatever we'll reassess.
1: but there's no way it's going to be a train wreck Not with this Not with this radio iq that's pumping through these what airwaves. radio iq but well, all right years
0: but we appreciate you listening thanks for being here bob you want to send them off
1: uh, thanks for listening we'll see everybody on tuesday